0: there. Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast about women who work in sport. My name is Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard, and I am your host. This is my first episode. Uh, last week, we released a little mini introduction episode, which I hope you all enjoyed. And today, you get to hear me speak with Sally Burgesson, the CEO and founder of Wazell. Uh, Wazell is a women's running apparel brand, and Sally is known for making quite the bit of noise in the running world, uh, particularly when it comes to athlete um, advocacy and her business model when it comes to sponsoring athletes is quite different. So we go through all sorts of different topics. Um, I hope you can follow (laughs) and um, yeah, I, I really do. I hope you enjoy it. Before we get into the episode, I do want to say a couple of words uh, about the tragic, disgusting events that occurred in Charlottesville this weekend. I normally would not um, make a political statement or um, bring up such a a terrible uh, attack on the podcast as it is not something that y'all are here to listen to. Um, The only reason I am bringing it up, however, is because in the interview, Sally and I do get into a bit about the political climate. Um, We did the interview a few months ago. I wanted to have a few in the bank before I started. So we're not skirting the issue or the events um, and we're not ignoring them. We are basically, you're going back in time (laughs) to a, oddly nicer period in time now. I do know that Sally uh, would be in agreement with me, however, when I say that I'm completely disgusted by what occurred and really do hope that we can make some real change going forward. So now that I've said that, I hope you enjoy this interview and I'm so thankful all of the support that everyone has given me over the last week as we launched the podcast. Today, I'm so excited. I have Sally Burgesson, the founder, CEO, and chief rabble rouser of the women's apparel uh-huh. brand Wazelle. <laughs> she is one of the loudest voices in the running world and has made her mark by advocating for change. And my little runner nerd heart almost exploded when she agreed to do this interview. Her unique approach to athlete sponsorship brought about a partnership with one of my favorite runners of all time, Eric Goucher. So please bear with me as I fangirl while we talk.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so, thank, hi. You,
0: thank you
2: so much for that nice intro. I'm, <laughs> um, I'm thrilled to be here and
0: uh, appreciate you reaching out. Yeah, you were my first cold call email. And um, your your quick response made me run around my apartment for a few minutes. I'm not going to lie; <laughs> <laughs> it's good. We
2: gotta we gotta like show up for each other when we can. I'm, yeah, I'm glad I got it worked out.
0: I love it. So let's start at what would be a good beginning with you, which is how did you fall in love with running? Mm,
2: that is a good question and such an interesting one for. For, I mean, myself, but also I think so many people who have fallen in love with the sport and because it's so often the case that in the very beginning, it's not love. <laughs> it's, <laughs> uh, it's an acquired taste and I just didn't love it uh, in the beginning. My father was a runner and he actually took up running in the midst of the, you know, jogging boom of the seventies. And I grew up in Berkeley, California and the Bay area. And he was my single parent, actually. Um, My mom was in the picture, but he was primary parent. And he was also a lawyer who worked in San Francisco. And he uh, started or or became a part of a running group of uh, fellow lawyer friends. And they used to run from their office in downtown San Francisco out to the marina Um, out by the Golden Gate Bridge. And for anybody who knows the San Francisco area, I know that that's like one of the most beautiful places to run. So I really credit Mm. him with introducing me to the sport in the very beginning. And um, so, uh, I mean, he also introduced me to running fashion kind of humorously enough as well (laughs) in that he bought me this, I I, like cringe and laugh and uh, enjoy when I look back on it now, but it was this... um, brown terry cloth um jogging suit. I think actually there were more than one earth tone in there. Um brown and brown and taupe <laughs> maybe. Uh and I just I laugh thinking thinking back on that cuz I still remember he and I going out for a couple of our earliest runs, maybe when I was in middle school. Me and my me and my brown terry cloth um <laughs> jogging suit and him doing his thing. So,
0: yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, do you uh, do you credit him at all um, with your rebellious tendencies that you have? Oh, um, I, I read that you moved out at age 16. Mm-hmm. Um, and well anybody who has followed the progression of Wazel and uh, you in the running world has seen your rebellious streak a little bit.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah,
2: for sure. So. I would say growing up in Berkeley, California in the seventies probably had a lot to do with forming who I am as a person. And that goes, that goes in many different directions. And it it starts with, you know, your parents and your family, but also has to do with the culture of the city that you're living in and the time in which you are living it. And, you know, quite frankly, the seventies in Berkeley was kind of the ground zero for uh activism and taking a stand on certain issues on diversity um it was a, a very intense melting pot where we talked about a lot we did a lot of things we were very um we were encouraged at a very young age to be outspoken
1: mm-hmm.
2: and to uh go to marches um uh, my mom used to take us to um, various protests and so i i mean it's funny. I I don't really think about it a lot. I think I have an unconscious bias to um, to kind of uh, live in that in that area of being very comfortable with speaking up when there's some kind of um, issue at hand. But um, I, I really think it started in that environment of um, of uh, of Berkeley and of and of my parents as well. My dad, I mentioned he was a lawyer, but um, he actually started. His law practice, um, after he graduated from Yale Law School, he went, uh, he moved to Jackson, Mississippi, shortly after he married wow. my mom. And he did civil rights work there um, in the South uh, during the mid um, to late 60s. And then um, they moved out to California and had me in in Berkeley. But um, in uh, San Francisco, he also did civil rights work. Uh, he did prisoners' rights work. He d- worked at the state public defender's office. Um, so there again, was um, kind of a history and a, and a family kind of expectation that um, perhaps you would not just um, inhabit the world <laughs> that you live in, but also try to make it a better place.
0: That's phenomenal. You must have heard amazing stories from him growing up.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, He um, they actually lived quite near civil rights leader Medgar Evers um, and um, knew him. And my brother is actually named, um, his middle name is Evers. And uh, Mm -hmm. so, yeah, a lot of stories, Um, you know, obviously such an interesting time. And, um, you know, I have always held the work he's done in high regard. I, I think it's interesting. He definitely came from not necessarily... Um, high privilege because I think my dad's family was pretty middle class, but he went on to go to Ivy League schools. He went to undergrad at Dartmouth and then um, Yale Law School. And I think he was one of those people where he saw a lot of his co-workers, um, not co-workers, I mean, his fellow um, students and graduates go on to do um, what he used to <laughs> kind of laugh and call corporate law. Um, mm-hmm. And he used to tell us that um, You know, if we wanted a lot of money, he should have gone and worked for like oil and gas companies and done corporate law. (laughs) And um, we never really understood it as a kid. I was just kind of like, well, as a kid, you're like, well, money (laughs) sounds fun. Um, Right. (laughs) But but he he just, you know, he very consciously decided on a different path. And um, I don't think he ever regretted that. And I, um, you know, have always admired him for that.
0: Um, Is he still alive? He is. What what does he think about our current uh, um, climate, let's say? Oh, the political climate. You know, I was
2: so bereft after the election and um, distraught and, you know, just like, what is the meaning of life and where are we? (laughs) And, you know, and I think like so many people, you if you can, if your parents are still alive, you go to them and you you want you want them to comfort you and kind of and you know like you said knowing my dad's history and and kind of background I just I really did turn to him and I don't know he wasn't he was helpful in that he helped me talk through he loves to dine out at good restaurants we spent a good couple meals talking about it and he was helpful in some regards but he was also kind of like you know the way way people get when they're jaded when they're not surprised about um you know the how power wealth and and is distributed and kind of the forces of the world and and kind of like you know a sort of like a what did you expect kind of thing so in that sense it was like maybe not as helpful as i wanted him to be but yeah that that was his reaction
0: well it seems like your childhood has uh trained you well for for the current tides so Mm -hmm. that's you know helpful i would think um yeah, for sure. I, I
2: mean I still drive around with my mom. My mom's um in her seventies and if we pass some kind of like, you know, in Berkeley, some kind of protest or something, she'll mm-hmm. be like, Oh, let's park the car. Let's get out. <laughs> you know, she's just <laughs> yeah. so I mentioned my dad, but my my mom definitely had that that streak as well. So um so yeah, I you know, it's int- the, the current climate is interesting. And I, I think the other thing, even though I had kind of those Experiences as a youth, you know, to be quite honest, um, the 80s, 90s, 2000s didn't really call on a lot of people, myself included, to really continue to fight for the change that's still very much needed in so many areas of our country and other countries. So I I would say that one thing that the election did for me was it kind of helped me. get woke in the current uh, parlance, um, even though I thought I already was. So that was kind of one of the eye openers. It was like, I thought I was already, um, you know, um, mindful of many of the um, issues um, that um, more marginalized people face in this country. And to be quite honest, I was not as engaged as I should have been.
0: Yeah, I I can agree with that. Um, I think the same thing happened with me did you by chance um go to the women's march near you
2: yeah i actually um went to D- dc um, i was there too did were you yeah weird we didn't see each other
0: that's so strange
2: <laughs> or maybe i did see you and we didn't even know and we it. didn't know <laughs> we didn't know it um yeah i you know as soon as that got announced i don't know maybe you felt this way as well and um i just Felt like God. If, if I can make it there, I would love to go. And and uh, so I went with my friend Sarah Lesko, and I actually went with my mom as well, and I took my two daughters. So
0: oh, that's great. it. Ended
2: up being a multi generational experience, which um, I'm very grateful for.
0: That's that sounds so nice. I I, I did. I was I was texting a, a girlfriend of mine saying I'm coming up. I know this might not be your thing, but I'm totally going, and I'm staying at your house. And, um, she ended up going and we, um, I mean, it was probably one of the best experiences either of us has ever had in terms of, um, I I hadn't been, you know, I hadn't been to a protest probably since I was in like maybe high school Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) and, um, and even then I didn't know what it was about. And now that I think about it as an adult, it was really stupid. (laughs) Um, (laughs) gotta (laughs) uh, start somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. you, so your dad was a lawyer and you ended up with an English degree from Oregon. Did you run at Oregon? You know,
2: I did not. And I laugh about it now because it's kind of one of the biggest, I don't know, ironies maybe, or, or just, (laughs) um, but I, I also, I don't know that I would have been able to make the team at Oregon. They're like, you know, top, top in the country. And although back then maybe a little less so than, than they are today. And, um, uh I ran one year of cross country my senior year of high school so um back to like how the, how did you find running thing I actually was pretty um un- remarkably unathletic <laughs> through most of my high school <laughs> high school career and uh, was up to no good and rabble rousing with friends and mm-hmm. kind of just like I, I did I moved out of you know my dad's house when I was 16 I moved in with a terrible first boyfriend um, who was just awful. And so I, I like to think that I made a lot of like um, bad mis- <laughs> bad choices <laughs> early on and kind of got them out of my system. But by the time I think it was a senior year or my senior in high school, I was getting a, a little bit restless and a little bit bored with, um, you know, purely causing trouble or just <laughs> doing whatever I wanted to do, which is a little bit what growing up in Berkeley was like and um that's when i tried out for the volleyball team and um didn't make it got cut basically was told i mean i was terrible so that i mean it's all all good they made the right choice yeah. <laughs> but um but i found running um cross country my senior year so but what's interesting is that i got into oregon but i i running didn't really stick at that point my senior year in high school i went off to college and i and i went through college and um kind of similar experience. It was toward the end of college where I was just like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm a little restless. I'm, I'm still like seeking that kind of uh, foundation for my life, kind of some stability, some order. Um, I had met my now husband, my junior year in college while I was studying abroad in France. And um, he was really, a really positive early influence on me just in that he, he wasn't a, well, he did running, but he was more of a cyclist. But the, the main point was that he was living a life of an athlete. Mm-hmm. And he was in doing so was living in a way that respected his own body. And he was making time for training. And, you know, and this is when we were over in France, which was actually like nobody was doing that. Like,
1: <laughs> nobody,
2: yeah. nobody that was on our college exchange program was like as religious about getting his training in as he was. And I, and I just remember like, being intrigued by this and like talking to him about it and just being like, huh, so you're like, you know, you're, you're respecting your, your like time and your body and you're like training and you're leading this whole like athlete lifestyle. And I just remember it, like it kind of caught my attention and obviously he caught my attention. Sure. And, uh, and so it was after that, when I moved back to the States and was finishing it up, up at Oregon that I started running in Eugene um literally just like got bought bought a pair of running shoes and ran around Eugene mostly wearing like cotton flannel boxers that also (laughs) doubled as my pajamas and big you know cotton t-shirt just like you know classic like newbie runner like I'm just gonna like find something that allows my body to move so yeah it was uh it was pretty pretty uh Um, pretty organic, but I would say that's really when it stuck. And I, and I really, it started to dawn on me that this was an incredible clarifier that after I ran, I
0: felt different and different Mm -hmm. than
2: I had ever really felt before.
0: Is that what uh, kept you away from becoming a lawyer? (laughs)
2: Well, damn it. I tried. (laughs) I tried. I, um, I gave it a go. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my English degree. I mean, honestly, I would have people say, well, are you going to be a teacher or are you going to be a lawyer? And that really seemed to be like the two options that I would hear the most. And I sort of felt like, I don't know. I don't really feel like I want to do either. Mm -hmm. So, um, after, after I graduated, I moved to Seattle for love to be with the husband who was um not my husband at the time my boyfriend um but i I knew i didn't want to move back to california and so he kind of wooed me up here he was born and raised in seattle and i got a first job um economy at the time was terrible in seattle it was hard to find a job and um just was was not a not a great um period here so i started temping and i did temp work for law firms and at that time i was like, well. Maybe I do want to be a lawyer. So then I progressed to becoming a paralegal. And then I was a paralegal for six years. And I progressed out of being a temp, being a permanent paralegal, and then was hired by a couple different firms and did um, paral- paralegal work in several different um, areas, including environmental law and insurance defense. And uh, I learned a lot. I was very grateful for that um, legal experience. But at the end of the six-year stint, I just... I. Um, I just decided I didn't want to practice. I didn't want to try to become a lawyer, and I I was like kind of just flailing around um, trying to find something something else. And I just by happenstance, um, this was back when you um, looked for jobs in the newspaper that was printed, right. and, <laughs> and then you responded to print ads by calling phone numbers. And oh so gosh. anyway, Kids these days they yeah, have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I just like randomly replied to this ad for. Um, it was basically like a an assistant role at a at a design firm uh, that happened to be in the building next door to the building where I was uh, paralegal, and um, yeah, that really that also changed my life.
0: You um you and I were chatting through email, and I was mentioning how difficult the design part is for me um, of this project. How I have no mm-hmm. idea how to take disparate and put them together make them look good so I'm very jealous of your abilities to do that Aww. um when um when did the it's okay
2: I'm jealous of your ability to build a case and write an awesome <laughs> brief and argue your point so, so I can mostly
0: do contracts I, I won't I'm not gonna <laughs> well, we might I'm need to lie. talk later <laughs> yeah yeah for sure um you your story about why Wazelle was formed is something that I think so many women in particular have felt at many different times in life when they put on something to wear. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, well, I would have to say that like, I've always had a love for fashion. And but I have to qualify that by saying I was had a very, I had a very particular type thing that I love because I would say I'm not I've never really been the person that has obsessively followed uh, global fashion I do today because I think it's always interesting to see kind of what's coming and I have certain um, designers that I really love but mostly what I was fascinated with was um, the sensorial feel of (laughs) fabric (laughs) And I and also quality. So I used to just nerd out on I would go to these like boutiques in um, Berkeley, you know, the ones that sold kind of the more off the beat, off the beaten track um, apparel lines that, you know, you would kind of never heard of. And and I would like look at construction and I would look at and I would feel fabrics. And I I just loved it. I I just I I wanted to I would. I would spend money I didn't have to buy something that was beautiful from a fabric and construction standpoint. Mm -hmm. And, and that I knew I would like keep for a long, long time over something that was less expensive and more like trendy. And I, I, I just have always had that, that kind of take on uh, clothing. That's not to say that I haven't ever bought something that's you know like Best I fashion. I have yeah. been in an H and M. I, I mean they <laughs> they make my skin crawl. But I um I've I've certainly um you know bought all kinds of fashion. But anyway, so I think I just oh, because I I um, had that take on it, I I had this um kind of uh, uh like a deep connection to like the respect maybe that goes into a garment and how that translated to the respect that I was giving myself when I put it on my
0: body. That's an interesting way of looking at it. I like that. I do love how soft things tend to be when you go to a boutique Mm -hmm. or something like that, that, you know, where it's not mass produced and everything's always so much soft.
2: Yeah, it's, it's softer. It, It can be thicker. It can be more, um, uh refined in the mm-hmm. denier, um which is a you know term that people that um is an industry term for the the knit and the tight knitness of the fabric. So you think of your, you know, your thread count. People always talk about thread count sheets, same kind of thing. Um so there's a lot of different there's even even the thread that's used to stitch a garment or think about like the zipper pull or think mm-hmm. about the way a button looks or maybe the details of it. So all of that like has like you know it, it there's a an art and a science to bringing all of those pieces together and i and i was always fascinated by it even at an early age when i didn't ever imagine myself going into the realm of apparel design mm-hmm.
0: and um do you mind sharing the story about why you started the what company prompted me? what yeah what prompted you yeah
2: yeah no i so i i think i mentioned i was at the design I went to the design firm after the no, lo- <laughs> the no lawyer moment. I <laughs> went to the design agency. I worked there for six years. I worked as a brand strategist. I did copywriting and naming and brand strategy and work with designers and basically helping companies figure out how to translate their brand into a visual language. And then after that, I had, or kind of at the end of that, I had babies. And then after babies, I started my mm-hmm. own business where I kind of, I did the same type of thing, but out of my home. And I did that for a good number of years, six or seven years, and then it was kind of at the kind of during that um, phase of having my own consulting practice that I had that entrepreneurial moment where you you just go looking for something and you can't find it, and then it's stuck in my head, and you're just like, why, you know, why uh, can't I find a great fitting pair of running shorts that you know I, I can tell are just quality from. All of those aspects I just listed off, whether it's the quality of the fabric or the stitching or the details or the fit. And I just started obsessing on it. (laughs) I just, I don't know. I just, I actually spent three years between I had that moment and when I actually did something about it. So that also goes to show that, you know, you just never know things germinate in your brain and and sometimes they just need to grow there for a while. And I think that can be a healthy A healthy stage. I think maybe sometimes people get too obsessively focused on having an idea and then like acting on it right away. Or, or you know, it, it's okay for it to to sit there and and see if it has enough uh, mojo in your brain <laughs> sure. for it to to want to chase it.
0: Yeah, I, I understand that. I think I sat on the idea for this podcast for a little while before really digging into what it would mean and and learning everything, which has been interesting. And yeah, I agree. Boiselle is a bit of a funny name. Mm -hmm. Um, I know it's a a French word for bird Mm -hmm. and you speak a little bit of French. Um, how did you, like, how did you get to that name? So
2: I actually did naming as a job when I was at the agency. So that's like, a crazy little niche, um, but really perfect for an English major, actually. Um, but we, this was like, you know, I worked at the agency in the late 90s. So it was a dot com era. And there were just so many businesses being formed. Um, that, so they were, you know, p- people were constantly hiring us to come up with new, either a company name or a product name. So Um, my most famous name is, is plan B with the emergency contraception product. Ah, um, and then I, uh, yeah, (laughs) which is kind of another, that could be another like podcast on its own because it's such a funny (laughs) story, but that one, and then also, um, named a local bank here and Clover, um, which is a coffee maker that Starbucks owns now. And you see them in their stores and, and so I had this naming background and, So I, because I love words, and I love forming new words, and my brain's just kind of wired that way. And I knew when I started, or was starting to think about this company, that the name was going to be really significant to me. And one of the big things that we talk about in naming consulting is that it's good to consider having a name that's what we call an empty vessel. So the empty vessel is basically a word that Um, maybe doesn't have any inherent meaning just um, on a surface level, um, but that you can fill with meaning um, as you build your brand. So, um, you know, a good example of that is probably Apple. Um, You know, Apple didn't really, it's maybe hard. I didn't remember a time before Apple was a big name, but, you know, in technology, it didn't really have any inherent meaning or associations. Um, So the brand was able to fill it with all of that. you know, Nike's actually a, another good example, even though it means the goddess of victory. It, um, you know, people just didn't really understand what the word meant kind of in and of itself. So I, um, having, you know, spent a lot of time developing names and thinking about them, I knew that I wanted that type of a name. I didn't want a name that was like fabulouswomensrunningapparel.com, you know, or because right, right. <laughs> that was kind of the trend, you know, in, in the dot com era, sure. pets.com and, you know. Carseats.com, et etc so um but while i had a love affair with you know france and french and so I, I knew that and i and i also had this belief that kind of a quirky name is is almost um it's like a it's it's a good thing it's even though it might be awkward um when people see it and they don't know how to pronounce it it's one of those things where when you do know how to pronounce it or when you hear somebody say it and then you you say it you're kind of like in the club and um
0: so as think, someone with a quirky name, I fully support that.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, and, you know, there's other weird names out there too, like, um, you know, Thule, uh, sport racks. So they're the racks that go on cars that carry bikes. Um, mm-hmm. it's spelled T H U L E. So it looks like yeah. Thule. Yeah. That's what I thought it was. <laughs> it's pronounced Thule. Uh, so now you're in the Thule
0: club and, uh,
2: so, I, anyway, so that that part of it didn't bother me, and then the other thing is, and you'll appreciate this for, as being a lawyer, but and um, the more unique your your name, the more ownable it is from a trademark standpoint.
0: Oh, for sure. For so
2: sure. that's why that's why big big corporations use uh, names like Xerox or, um, you know, it's just a it's a complete gobbledygook, you know, name letters words. Um, I'm not a huge fan of that direction because I think it's just you know, it's been done so much by the tech world and, and for a consumer brand, it doesn't really have a lot of soul. Um, but, uh, so, so that, that was the, all the thinking that went into it. And I, the funny backstory though, is that the common word for bird in French is oiseau. um, it's O I S E A U, which, I mean, talk about like, can I buy a consonant? Um, right, got, right.
1: like,
2: um, even weirder than Wazelle, I think probably more difficult for people to wrap their heads around. But there was a little company in L.A. called Mon Petit Oiseau, which ah. was a T-shirt company. And they owned Wazo from a, a trademark standpoint. So that's when I had to I had like a real sad moment where I was like, oh, no, it's not available. <laughs> and I opened my huge French dictionary that I have left over from my husband and I. He actually studied more French than I did. And I was kind of going I was looking at wazo in the dictionary and, and kind of scrolling down. And then that's when I spotted wazel, And that's also when it dawned on me, duh, that um, wazo is a masculine word as in French, you know, all words are either masculine or feminine. And that wazel mm-hmm. was the, uh, specifically, it's the antiquated version of for female bird. Uh, and um, that's when a tiny light bulb went off and then grew into a bigger light bulb I think naming is weird in that um and I always tell this to people that are going through the process that it's very hard to love a name when you haven't yet um, owned it um sure. kind of like naming a baby or something like it kind of this moment of like well I think you're Fred but you know then Fred becomes <laughs>
0: Fred you know and they're only like of course it's Fred <laughs> anyway so <laughs> hey I got it <laughs> it makes sense yeah that's funny um did uh, did you have a particular draw towards towards birds previously? Yeah, I. You know, it's funny.
2: Yes and no. I I can't say that I've spent. I up until that point, I had spent a life obsessing about birds. I'm not a birder. Um, okay. I um, I love birds, and I the association was quite clear in my mind why I wanted bird in the first place, even in a different language was. Because for me, running was that feeling of flight and freedom that I couldn't get, you know, anywhere else. And was that thing that changed my life, you know, when I started yeah. doing it for real at the end of college. And I so I just I, I really wanted to um, bring that association into the brand. But having said that, I had no idea. It would take the wings, literally, pun intended, that it has in so many different directions, whether it's our office being called the nest or um, our community and team members um, calling each other birds or, you know, <laughs> going into flight or. So I, I, um, I didn't really anticipate it um, becoming as fully developed as it is now, but I'm incredibly grateful that it has.
0: Yeah, there are so many. Hashtag worthy things that come from it that I've seen on social media. Mm. It's, you know, it's been really cool to watch. Um, And I think I, I mean, I think I saw you all for the first time. Probably at a Boston Expo. Mm -hmm. Um, I, even though I've never run Boston because Mm -hmm. I respect it too much. um, I've never run Boston either. So we're in the no Boston team. Maybe we'll do it together one day. I need a, I need a motivator. I need my hips not to break. Um, <laughs> I need my knees not to fall off. Yeah. Um, but I think I always loved the expos. Um, you know, they were in it, it to this day. It's such a even if you're not running the Boston Marathon or whatever big race is near you. If you're, you know, someone who's active, those expos are almost always free and It is such a cool experience to go and talk to the different vendors Mm -hmm. and try different things. And I remember, I think you guys had like a small little, just like, what Almost like a, a tiny little thing in another thing. Oh, you know, interesting. Like, yeah. In like we had
2: a shop and shop maybe with one yeah. of the bigger retailers. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I remember going, what is that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, oh, good. That's the reaction
2: yeah. we want to elicit.
0: <laughs> well, you know, you hear about, you hear all the other names, right? Mm-hmm. There are these really giant companies that take up space in the running world. Mm-hmm. And when you see some of the smaller ones, at least for me, I'm always a little like, hmm, what's that? Right. You know, and that might be my own little rebellion where I didn't want to wear certain shoes. I wanted to wear, I don't know, New Balance. Right. When I was in high school, New Balance was still kind of a new thing. And yeah, um, yeah, that type of deal. So, yeah, I I think it's
2: interesting that you say that because I, 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 you know, I did that myself and I see that in other people that in your journey as a runner, as you transform from being not a runner, to a very new runner, to just a new runner, to a less than, new, you know, to a more experienced runner. I think people do, uh, they do, they kind of start on the fringes with maybe the, like you said, the most, you know, widely available or, or least expensive or, you know, product brand names. And then as they you know develop their love of the sport and and you know more appreciation for it they start to nerd out on kind of the more the more niche brands that have really dedicated themselves to the sport and find a lot of uh, joy in the discovery like you said of like going to an expo and you're like wow i didn't know they had like an earlobe roller for like,
0: oh you know, like i buy so much stuff sally <laughs> like i remember uh, uh oh oh gosh it was uh the year of the bombing um i went uh that weekend to the expo so i remember getting a lot of text messages because i posted pictures of myself at the expo and some people in the fringes of my life don't realize that i love expos and can't run a marathon to save my life at this point point. and um they were worried which was really sweet but yeah i bought so much stuff. Mm. I mean, the sparkly soul bands because I love those. Mm-hmm. The Eurobuds because mm-hmm. those are great. Like, I think I went every other you know vendor and bought something. I bought sunglasses that I broke two days later. Mm-hmm. um You know, it, I just yeah, I yeah, I have a problem at expos. It's fun times. <laughs> um, the the you know uh, soul of Wazel is this manifesto that y'all wrote Mm -hmm. and I'm guessing that you were heavily behind that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it, it kind of leads into your noisy disruption of the industry, which I have loved watching. Um, You know, one of those is you speaking out about the rights of athletes uh, in running to be able to market and brand themselves um, and have, um, sponsorships that aren't with, you know, the big one, and um, you also do sponsorships of athletes quite mm-hmm. differently. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, first, I would say the manifesto was just a really good exercise for us to go through at the time because, you know, what I don't think we wrote it until 2013, and it was uh, like a point in the organizational development where we felt. Where there was, we were getting enough traction and enough interest from people that wanted to be, um, you know, uh, part of the brand, or you know, wear the singlet or be on the team, or you know, whatever kind of level of affiliation. And and we we just noticed that there was a a need to put forth really kind of what we stood for, so that there wasn't any confusion around um, kind of our reason for being and how we viewed the sport and how we wanted to be a team that was welcoming to all, all women of all types and all ages and all faces. And so even though, um, we have these, um, elite athletes as well. So we knew that it was a more complicated story, um, for then had been, um, that had been around it, you know, and when we, when we started doing what we were doing it. It's like the, you know, kind of traditional male-led, male-driven brands in our space, that's all the shoe companies Mm -hmm. um, doing all of the um, pro-athlete sponsoring and um, really um, invested in that elite uh, space. And then female-led companies traditionally being, you know, Primarily just a product offering and community based, which is incredibly important, but less on the competition side and, and actually often kind of shied away from competition. And we really felt that it was time to bridge that gap um, and that we ourselves were women who loved competition, who loved to compete. Uh, I had been, you know, doing running races since I, you know, you know, started running and training when I was about, you know, 21, 22. So, so that's that was that was a big, um, I mean, it was it was it like felt like the just the natural next next step for us. And I had no again, kind of what they go along with the bird thing. I had no idea kind of what we were getting into um, by entering this space. And to be quite honest, I thought that I would find that it was more. Mature and developed, and better supportive of female athletes than it was.
0: Right. And for those listening who don't really know much about the typical deals, it's you, they basically, the runners will get paid based on, or they may be docked pay, I guess, based mm-hmm. on how many races they run and mm-hmm. how, how, um, Elite, they're considered. Mm-hmm. Is, that, mm-hmm. is that the case?
2: Right. So, a typical um, pro contract, as they had have been offered, um, you know, for the last twenty years, is that it's uh, written to reward you for several different things. It could be a national ranking. So, USA Track and Field every year comes out with their rankings of uh, uh, pro U.S. athletes. It could have to do with the number of uh, elite races that you've run in a single year. Um, And it could have to do with how well you've placed in specific races. Or it could have to do with whether or not you make a Worlds or Olympic team. And so all of those are levers um, that uh, the traditional contract would pull for um, uh, a pro athlete. And Unfortunately, there were um, you know the 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 teeth that go into these contracts because these are these are athletes that are independent contractors. They're not employees of any of these companies, and unfortunately, as an independent contractor, you have none of the rights um, that you do as uh, an employee uh, to protect yourself from some of these abusive practices, um, and that can be everything from Um, withholding pay completely, potentially you're paid quarterly. Um, If you're injured that first quarter, you actually just don't get paid. Um, There have also been instances of retroactive reductions, which means that if you Mm -hmm. were paid, you will now be asked to return money that you've been paid. Uh, There is the um, uh, injury aspect of it too. And then there's also... um, pregnancy for women. So particularly for women athletes uh, and professional women athletes, right? These are women who have dedicated their life to this profession. And then suddenly they're um, they're forced to kind of view their bigger life through this prism of, well, if I get pregnant, that's going to be deemed an injury based on my contract and I'm not going to get paid. And um, that actually happened to Kara Goucher during the height of her popularity and you know so once you get in there and you start hearing some of these stories firsthand and you start talking to some of these athletes you know it was just it was you know to be honest it's pretty appalling
0: yeah to use a, a term that i appreciate very much and means this is going to go explicit and i don't care it's complete bullshit mm-hmm. um you know uh, how a brand couldn't see marketability in a a pregnant woman is unbelievable to me
2: well unfortunately they saw the marketability in it and cara herself was very marketable while she was pregnant and continued to play that role at the same time that she was docked so i mean it's it's crazy i mean it's just it's unfathomable to consider um the asks that were given to her um and the what was happening behind the scenes and i i you know once i learned what i learned i wanted to to just do as much as possible to share um no problem zoom zoom yeah so it's (laughs) just there's there's just so much more that needs to be done and and but a big a big thing is like the the athletes the athletes have to have to ask for more. Um, and we're in a really, we're in, I mean, I know it's not unique to track and field, but the the trend and kind of the pattern that happens is that young, talented athletes are coming out of, you know, wherever they're coming out of, whether it's, you know, universities or, you know, even the occasional case of the, you know, coming out of high school and going pro. And they don't really have, there's, there's no union for track and field um, athletes. Right. And the agents are often compromised by their relationships with the big brands. So they're often um, doing things that are not in the best interest of the athlete, even though the athlete has turned to them to help advocate for their rights and needs. And I've seen that happen again and again as well for, for various athletes. So
0: it's USTAF require agents to have any sort of um, credentialing.
2: There is some credentialing for being um, an agent. I don't, I don't know that it's um, incredibly uh, difficult. I I don't know. (laughs) I don't even know if they perform like a, you know, criminal background check or, or what, but, um, but it's a, it's a big, big problem. And, and we, um, there's just, yeah. There's just so so much to do there, but ultimately, um, the athletes are going to have to advocate for their ni- their rights and their needs.
0: Sure. And so the way that you have um, put these sponsorship agreements together um, with the athletes, at least I know with Kara and Lauren, they're more like partnerships,
2: correct? Mm hmm. They are. They're more like partnerships, and they are, you know. Um, They're multifaceted. They're more like, a, you know, it's more like a salaried uh, employee relationship than it Mm -hmm. is, um, you know, independent contractor. The the issue is that because we are a small company, we can't do as many as we'd like to do. And um, I, you know, want to we you know, if you were to look you know, at the DNA of our our company, we have spent probably an outsized portion of our budget um, sponsoring athletes um, knowing and believing that it was, you know, not only um, the good thing to do for women in the sport, but also that it was a really clear different, you know, business differentiator for us from both like a marketing and a brand standpoint. So it's, um, but the, the way the sport is organized right now, it's, Quite frankly, it's very difficult for brands like us or even other bigger shoe brands to get their return on investment from world and Olympic caliber athletes because of the way the sponsorship, um, because of the, the, the logo uh, rules and restrictions once you get up to the, the national level.
0: Right. And I know that uh, late last year, in particular, you had uh, commented to a couple of outlets that you were considering legal action regarding the oh puppy
2: oh yeah <laughs> little angry man there
0: he is. <laughs> um, regarding the Ted Stevens Act and Rule Forty yeah mm-hmm. um, where do you stand with that now mm-hmm.
2: yeah we had some uh, great discussions with um, our legal team here um, including um, former uh, Attorney General for Washington State about the Ted Stevens Act and about what. And how the USOC is organized and how the USATF organized. And it really does start with the Ted Stevens Act. And basically the the conclusion that the lawyers came to was that the Ted Stevens Act was ripe for uh, reform. And Mm -hmm. that, you know, that is something that um, if we got the right coalition, coalition of the willing, if you will, (laughs) um, of uh, organizations that wanted to push for change there, that that was um, probably a um, potential, a good potential route. Uh, I would say that I you know, I currently see more um, more potential for change in that direction, even though it probably involves Congress and um, et cetera, than I do in advocating for change up from the bottom up through the USATF. Because as far as I can t- tell, the USATF has zero interest in, uh, changing the current, uh, dynamics around, uh, sponsorship visibility and, uh, basically helping athletes make a better living through better sponsorship visibility.
0: One of my favorite stories that I read, um, (laughs) that I think made me fall in love with you just a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know, not to get too weird, Mm -hmm. um, is the story about, when, um, one of your athletes, um, you know, was on the podium and you were just so annoyed because she and all of her other competitors were wearing the one brand, but none of them were sponsored by that brand. And so you kind of took things into your own hands. Yeah. You know, a
2: little civil disobedience can go a long way (laughs) and, uh, you know, getting back to the uh, Berkeley roots, you know, I mean, people talk a lot about activism, you know you know now it's it's trendy and it's current, and it, et cetera. but you know sometimes people forget that you know activism actually typically involves breaking some kind of rule. And so I think unless you're willing to um, uh, do something that's a little bit on the edge, um, you know it it's uh, it's it it may not move the needle um, and I you know. Uh, I that that moment of you know basically reflecting to the world what was a kind of actually going on underneath that um, world's team was just an opportunity to highlight what I was just talking about which is that we have a uh, professional athlete um, ecosystem in which you know the top five percent of the athletes in the U.S. get these Get these big deals, and that's great for them. Um, However, there's you know probably 200 other athletes um, right around them that you know could potentially be just as good, but that are like you know fighting over you know fifteen thousand dollar a year contracts. Um, And the reason why those contracts are so low is because again there is no brand visibility for the smaller players that have decided that they want to invest in track and field because not to get you know too complicated, but essentially what happens is if you're running for Wazel, but you make an Olympic team or you make a worlds team, um, you will no longer be able to thank Wazel, wear Wazel, acknowledge Wazel. So right. if you think about it, the moment that we've you know been working towards, been building towards in sponsoring this athlete, the very moment that we've been investing in is now no longer ours to share with that athlete. And so, I mean, ask any business person, what is the what is the return for Wazel or any other business interested in investing in track and field if they don't get any visibility? And this issue is actually, you know, so crucial to me that I, I, I mean, I worked closely with Lauren Fleshman when she presented her proposal to the USATF board over a year ago now to basically make room on the national team jersey for a secondary logo. So it's fine to have the national team be sponsored by a brand like Nike, but in most cases, Nike is giving these athletes that run for other brands, nothing. They're giving them nothing. And they are basically taking the moment that they have on the national stage and using it for their own marketing and own brand purposes. And the athlete gets nothing. And the sponsor that's been sponsoring that athlete gets nothing. So it's actually, it's a pretty significant problem that lauren actually created a proposal for to the board that as far as i can tell has just been um stonewalled
0: well and one of the problems you know really underlying all of this is the revenue sharing mm-hmm. from the USDAF down right mm-hmm. so in other um professional sports and from the olympics and i mean and the, yeah.
2: Yeah, it's... I mean the Olympics is probably like the worst example of revenue sharing like in sports period. Like it probably makes NC2A look like, you know, <laughs> ping pong league.
0: Right. But what is it between like 12 and 24% go to track and field athletes whereas in other sports it's closer to the 45%? Yeah.
2: That I read? Yeah, that sounds about right. I don't have that stat right in front of me, but um yeah, it's like I think it was last year was the first year that a somewhat of a revenue sharing plan got put in place by the USATF, and it was basically like if you made the Olympic team,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I think you got ten thousand um, dollars. So, which is awesome. That is a, definitely a great step in the right direction. But if you think about it, that's after you've that's after you've spent four years of your life uh training training. and you know and and i mean it can't be understated how difficult it is to make an olympic team it is um one part phenomenal talent one part you know life in which you can dedicate you know your full-time pursuit to this and probably get paid very little one part you know luck of the draw um uh you know, one part staying healthy. I mean, it's just crazy yeah. all the things that have to line up in order for that to happen. So the notion that that is the carrot at the end of the four-year, um, you know, stick for, for track and field athletes, that's their reward, that's their, that's their income, um, is just, you know, it's completely um, misleading um, to, to kind of position that as the USATF has. That that's um like the
0: the reward, yeah. As um this is something I actually don't know. So I'm Kara Goucher in my dreams, and mm-hmm. I train wearing wazelle clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, I race in wazelle clothing in every instance, except are they allowed to wear your your clothing just with the brand hidden, basically for? for worlds and for the um olympics or do they have to wear something else that's provided to them
2: uh it depends on the event but typically they're provided with
0: yeah and one of the things with running in particular and you know i think this is true in a lot of sports um you you practice in similar or the same things that you're going to race in Mm -hmm. or you're going to compete Mm -hmm. in so I guess this gets into your enclosed cognition, uh, theory, Mm -hmm. which, you know, the more I think about it, the more it makes sense. I mean, the number one rule for runners when you're Mm going to race is don't eat or wear anything you haven't eaten or worn while training. Yeah. So how does that work out for, for the athletes?
2: Yeah. It's interesting. You, you mentioned that because I think that's one approach that we've, uh, Considered because there's actually rules around um, technical uh, gear needed for for individual technical performance, and um, it it could be argued, you know, if if let's say theoretically you were to have had a devastating experience with the leading brand in track and field, so much so that it impaired your ability to feel confident. That's right.
0: kind of an interesting
2: question to pose then as to whether that athlete were to be on the start line of the Olympics or a world's team and asked where the brand that they had that association with. Um, because I think you could probably pretty easily make a case w- even with uh, expert testimony, if you will, uh, sure. from psychologists or mental health professionals about that connection between what we put on our bodies and, and how we feel. And I think it would be, I think you'd be pretty hard pressed to convince um, someone that uh, they should, uh, an athlete who's competing at the highest level should be forced to wear something that um, demoralizes them.
0: Well, and I think part of that, um, you know, it certain um, brands are connected very closely with certain coaches, right? Mm -hmm. So if, that relationship was not great, then mm-hmm. you're going to have that connection in your mind. Mm-hmm. Right. And, mm-hmm. and then I can, I can absolutely see how that would be problematic. And I mean, a lot of us have read about Paris um, experiences mm-hmm. and, um, and how, you know, that situation was a really unhealthy situation for her. Yeah. Um, yeah, for, for sure. You
2: know, I mean, it's, it's her story and I'm not right, not here to tell it, but you know, the, the, um, contract, you know, stuff that I alluded to, as well as, you know, what's, you know, coming out more and more in the news every day about Alberto Salazar and basically how he, how he coaches his athletes and the expectations he has around their willingness to basically be, um, a drug, um, you know, beta test, uh, various um, you know if you know even if they're not banned uh, prescription medications uh, that uh, he has some inkling might uh, improve their their performance so I think if you were to have been a young athlete to you have lived through that experience as it's been um, articulated in the media lately these young athletes who you know essentially feel that they don't they can't say no they don't have um, an alternative their career is on the line you know all of these things they trust and want to trust you know somebody who has as much stature and as much experience as um he does and um you know and who among us can say that if we weren't in that position that we wouldn't do the very same thing you know it's um it's it's such a
0: uh, Well, we see this in other sports particularly mm -hmm. at younger um you know, age groups, um, high school, college in particular, the one difference with track and field is that there isn't that large, um, athlete advocacy group. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, you know, your voice, Lauren's voice, um, Kara's, Nick Simmons, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, you, you're starting to hear more and more. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, because running is one of those sports where you just get one injury and you could be done for life. Right, right.
1: Yeah,
2: no, it is. It's so, and and you know, and when you're riding it and you're in it and it, things are going well, you just that's all you want and need, and you know, to think, even to have an expectation that an athlete in that position is going to step out of themselves and be like, I should do what's like in the best interest of the greater good of the sport. It's just like, right. it's, it's not realistic. And, and it's, um, you know, I don't think any, anybody who says that they were if they were in their shoes and that, that it would be easy to do the same thing, that that would not be truthful. And so, so really, the, I mean, it's part of the reason why I think it is super important for the Nick Simmons and the Lawrence and the Karas and the, um, Phoebe Wrights rights and the, you know, the people who mm-hmm. have kind of come out of the sport and been very vocal it's 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 really important for those voices to to be out there because the young, the young, you know, bucks coming up um, need to hear that stuff even if they don't heed the warning or even if they don't act right away. Um, you know, like with Boris Berien, you know, the stuff that happened with his contract leading up to the Olympics. and um, you know, athletes just need to know that they can and should ask for better contract terms and not to view it as this like desperation of like I just have to say yes because I may not get another chance when you enter into a contract with a brand that is when you have the leverage to make sure that what you have is a humane contract and um and is one that honors the amount of passion and work that you know you're going to put into your career and your sport
0: one of the other issues that um in particular, uh, has spoken out about and that, um, your brand has a shirt about, which I love, Mm -hmm. um, is doping. Mm -hmm. And it, this has gotten some big news, um, you know, in the last year in particular, um, in the running world, we've seen a lot of medals um, stripped from people and, and by strip, that's a mm-hmm. proverbial because you never mm-hmm. know where the actual metal is. Mm-hmm. And and now there's talk about um, basically taking away world people's records. records. Yeah. Right. So um, is it jo- Joan Benoits mm-hmm. would be taken away? Is that correct? Um, I know Paula Radcliffe. OK, um, Paula's.
2: I'm not sure I, you know, it's, I haven't um, read up on all the records that would be um, at risk though, obviously, um, potentially all of them or most of them. And I, I don't know. That seems, it, it seems like, un, it you seems know, extreme. extreme, incredibly unfair to those athletes who did achieve their records the right way. Right. and. You know, I, I, I don't know. I don't, you know, I, I, the thing is, is there, there's just no, there's no easy answers to any of these these problems because so many records have been set, you know, in questionable times and, you know, whether it's the, you know, the, the doping that was so prevalent in um, the eighties and nineties and, you know, and by the way, no country is free of guilt in the (laughs) doping game you know the us and athletes that um ran for the us um have been just as guilty and um you know it's 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 running rampant through various federations and obviously the countries and the federations where they are less willing to crack down and have these rigorous um anti-doping practices <laughs> and standards um yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, um, will are just you know it's like it's become just full blown diseases. Yeah, and um, unfortunately, I think the one of the kind of biggest problems is that our international um, anti doping governing body, um, WADA, um, doesn't really have any power mm-hmm. or any teeth. They don't. Right. They don't have the ability to do anything. They can't enforce um, much. Um, They can't even find out much. And not only that, but, you know, people that sit on the board of the IOC also sit on the board of WADA. And guess what? Somebody who has interests in having the appearance of the Olympics look amazing um, is not going to be the same person that calls bullshit on a doping program. so um there's just all of these like inherent conflicts and and problems with the way the system is in place everything from testing to enforcement to um how uh countries get ratified so they can participate in the olympics and um just a really really
0: um, big problem the olympics or Mm -hmm. you know I, i the whole rio thing is still like burned into my mind about how gross some of the facilities were you know pools and stuff like that and mm. just and how they these places end up like dead cities
2: mm. afterwards yeah the olympic machine is a that's a kind of an interesting also different whole different side topic but yeah for sure you yeah. just see these kind of cities get kind of ravaged in a way or you see you know i don't know it's like any kind of ecosystem like that like anybody who lives in a big city like Seattle like you know the the Seattle Seahawks have an amazing sports facility meanwhile you know kids all over the city are driving an hour to get to a track that has a proper you know track surface um, because there aren't enough tracks in Seattle to handle the number of kids who are running tracks so it's like you know there's just these these crazy um, inequities that exist in sport kind of you know, across the board.
0: The um, so the shirt I was referring to, I was playing on your website today, mm-hmm. and so you've got the Runners Against Doping mm-hmm. shirt, which I loved. Um, you have th- these are some of the things that I just I wrote down because I loved them so much. Yeah. Um, your Woman Up collaboration with the Be Brave Get Ugly mm-hmm. Girl Gang, the, that's a new collaboration mm-hmm. that you put out, which I think is awesome. Oh, thank you. Um. One of my favorites, and any friend of mine who's listening to this is just going to roll their <laughs> eyes because they know me. Um, you have a cat lady racerback bra. <laughs> Let's talk about that. <laughs> now, the
2: cat lady racerback bra is made from a. It's made from a double <laughs> high, like high pile fleece. So I know you've been hankering for a fleece bra, ladies. Don't lie.
0: (laughs) I think this is something that friends of mine are going to get as winter treats because I no longer live in a cold place. But I need somebody in my life to have it. Absolutely. I mean, Um, yes. yes. And then, you know, the cutest thing that I saw and I knew you did this um, because I think I had seen. You had a wedding dress, a running yep. wedding dress, yep, right? Yep. And you also have these bridesmaids dresses. So it's such a cute idea. Um, you could, I can totally imagine. You know, a batch, a healthy bachelorette party where the bride wears the little running wedding, wedding dress, and the bridesmaids wear these really cute dresses yep. while they run. Yep. That is such a fun idea. How did you? Where did that come from? Uh, well,
2: when Waza was a, just a teeny baby company I was always like kind of trying to think of clever things that would get you know us noticed because that's the name of the game when you're a tiny company right. you're just like how can I get runners to know about us and um so I I just was running along one day which you know moral of the story is you get all your weird ideas and slash good ideas when you're running <laughs> but um I was like oh, you know I was thinking about how you know you'd always I'd kind of see you know, like maybe Boston or New York or something where a couple gets married like at mile 13 or something Mm -hmm. of the marathon and it would be on the news and it was always kind of like this, this funny thing. And I thought, you know, I wonder if anybody's designed a running wedding dress. And, um, you know, anytime you have an idea, the first thing you need to do is Google it. Right. Because, (laughs) chances are somebody has thought of it. But when I googled it, uh, I didn't find anything I found like kind of a hodgepodge of, of, you know, stories of people having, you know, basically put together something that looked like a wedding dress, but that wasn't exactly like so. So that was the aha moment. And basically, I, it was funny the the story. Now I look back on it. Um, you know, I I basically pitched Runner's World on the story before I had the dress, and this is like, <laughs> embarrassed. Like, if Runner's World, if you're listening, I'm sorry, but it's it's what I did. I just was desperate. So I so I did a sketch of it and I pitched and pitched it to them, and lo and behold, like they wrote me right back and they were like, oh, we love that. That's so cool. Like, you know, can we get pictures of it by Tuesday, like of next week.
1: <laughs> <laughs> And sorry, David, like, Willie. I
2: was, yeah, sorry, David. Um, <laughs> and I was just like, oh, shit. So <laughs> I had a I had a total project runway moment where I like, you know, called a girlfriend who's better at sewing than I am. And we like basically designed and sewed this dress, this run- runaway bride dress. And I had my first employee, Andrew- Andrea Barker, um, who's a really fast runner, awesome person um put the dress on and we photographed her running around green lake and and yeah that was that was it it was pretty hysterical we just and then it was in runner's world and then and it actually got us a ton of attention and i mean we entertained people which you know i that's what runner's world wants is entertaining people with weird ideas well
0: runners are weird let's just put it out there yes they they sure are we share a lot of information with each other, <laughs> even when we've just met. Um, we do disgusting things at times. <laughs> that's right. And that's right. we wear weird shit. Weird shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Um, that's, I mean, I wore a tutu uh, last year mm-hmm. at a race for mm-hmm. the first time. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie. I was mm-hmm. very slow, mm-hmm. but it was kind of fun. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> you know, it's like. I
2: mean, A, wherever, whatever the hell you want. And, um, but B, it's just, you know, it's, you know, it's just like, you can be as serious as you want, um, or you can be as playful as you want and everything in between is fun.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it all goes as with everything goes to just being authentically yourself. Right. So, um, being able to use running as a way to be goofy, mm -hmm. you know, if that's, Part of who you authentically are, I think is, is always. Exactly. A, you know, it, you know what's different. funny
2: though, is that I didn't like, even in the start of Wazelle, I didn't think, I was not as evolved as that. I, I actually was like, I will never run in a skirt. And I, I'm, I mean, I'm not going to say I was super judgy because I'm not like a judgy person, but I'm just like, why would you ever run in a skirt? Like, it's just like, I, to, to me, it like, it offended my sort of like, Athlete sensibilities, and that mm-hmm. I feel like you know you've got legs. Well, and, and why are you picking it up? And like you know, you need to use your legs. And yeah. if you're wearing one of those skirts with like shorts underneath, of course now we sell them. And then you have the other <laughs> the other piece of fabric over it that you know. But that's that's been kind of part of the beauty of my journey with Wazelle is I've I've gotten to know so many amazing women athletes and. Wanted, and I learned why the skirt is popular, and it's for a lot of different reasons. I mean, I'm not saying this is the only reason, but a lot of women love the fact that they have those spandex shorts underneath and that they don't chafe. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the skirt provides kind of like, you know, a layer of coverage over that. So you're not, yeah. I mean, because, you know, spandex shorts aren't always the go-to thing that you're like, oh, yeah, that's what I want to run around in.
0: I mean, um, not everybody can wear the little booty shorts it, that, you know, oh, you, not yeah, everyone sister, feels comfortable in. No. Or like the, the little brief yeah. that they race yeah. in. Oh, my gosh. The buns. Yeah, the buns. Oh, yeah. We did, we did not have those in high school. Yeah. And I think they do now. And I, you know, I'm always like, oh, dear God, I cannot imagine. Yeah. Yeah. How Sun, that would have gone. Buns out. Buns out. So, yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. So, anyway, I, I just, you know, I, I just appreciate. Women of all, you know, the all the walks and all the runs, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and what they like to wear. and I really try to um, from Wazelle's perspective, approach it as a designer from the standpoint of listening and um, and serving, you know, without it hopefully sounding too weird, but i I feel like i I serve women,
0: yeah, no, I think that's um, uh, a a good way to phrase it. You know, you're providing something that um, women need and not just the products, but this community. Um, You know, you you guys have done a really good job of um, having your brand also become a community within itself. Mm. And um, so that's been fun to watch happen as well.
2: Um, It's the best part of what we do. And to be honest, it's why I started running. So it's very I mean, before Wazelle was my running friends and so and I know how that changed my life. Yeah. And Wazel doesn't have to be a part of anybody's running group. However, if it happens to facilitate people connecting with each other through running, then I like job done. I it makes me so happy.
0: Yeah, I I agree. I mean and I've learned, you know, for me in the in the past few years, I was the same way. I'd be like a skirt. What am I? Mm-hmm, Why do I have to be too girly? Mm-hmm. You know, and then I put a tutu on. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I've done that a lot in my yeah. life. And, yeah. you know, I've done it with certain types of exercise, yoga. Right. What hell is that? Yeah. Like, I remember. And I, I will say that I in my life have been very judgmental and it's something I work on. Um, but it still pops its ugly head every once in a while. So I can appreciate that. um, You know, and I used to think I didn't need Mm -hmm. women friends. Mm -hmm. You know, I I was always a boy's girl Mm -hmm. and it was fine. And, you know, I didn't need a group of women friends Mm -hmm. and I find the older I get, um, you know, and the more um, focused on myself I am in terms of my self care Mm -hmm. and and stuff like that, the more I Mm -hmm. realize that I, you know, I do, and that's part of the, the reason for doing this podcast is selfishly, mm-hmm. I get to talk to amazing mm-hmm. people like you, who I found out we have a lot in common, aside from our mm-hmm. our, our wit mm-hmm. and um, brown hair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you and I both um, love to sleep more than pretty much anything else. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, Uh, sleeping is like my favorite thing Um, (laughs) well you know
2: it's it's really good for you it's uh, I know it's taken me
0: a while to learn
2: that it it may actually be my like life gift (laughs) sure yeah (laughs) it's the ability to sleep because everything else you know you regenerate through sleep and you maintain healthy energy levels and thinking capacity and everything so
0: and I always had sleep problems falling asleep um up until within the last maybe year year mm-hmm. and a half and um but i could always sleep forever like mm-hmm. once i fell asleep i right. could sleep forever right, right. but it was the falling asleep and um through some some work i've i've, I've found that what's your sweet spot mm-hmm. how For many hours hour well
2: i mean 8 is great like um you know that's that's plenty i could probably sleep more if i've had like a really busy stressful week and i've get a sure. chance to sleep longer but you know, I think eight is, eight is a good, is a good number. And I, you know, I think it's also one of those things when you're an athlete, um, you really enjoy sleep because it, it is the recovery part and, you know, you're exerting yourself, um, a lot through the day because you're combining not only your sport, but um, probably what you're doing in your life. And, um, if you're, um, in the relationships in your life, whether or not you're a, a parent or not. So I just, um, I think healthy sleep is, um, is super important. And, and of course, you know, it's really, it, you know, we're blessed that we can, um, a lot of people, um, aren't, aren't in that right. position and, and struggle with it. And, you know, I, and even I like, you know, I'll say probably like 10 years ago, I went through a period where I started to take, um, Ambien occasionally mm-hmm. because it was that like, it was like working at night and you would get like kind of wired yep. and then I couldn't turn my brain off and then yeah. and then by the time i did fall asleep i was like exhausted when i had to get up and yeah. couldn't get enough sleep so, so i started taking ambien and um i know it's really common among people and i um you know i started taking it like once a month and then it started to creep up and to the point where i was using it more often than i and that i realized was good for me and so um i went through that too and i i ended up just kicking it all together and i haven't i, I probably haven't taken ambien in i don't know 5 years or something but I think it's, um, it's just, it's one of those things you got to keep your eyes on. It's just like how these like substances can kind of creep into your life and they become like an item that helps you do X, Y, Z better, whether that's sleep or whether that's relaxing or whether that's, you know, revving up. And, um, I mean, I'm. I'm an intense coffee drinker too, so I think that can get that can get a yeah. little bit dangerous levels. But I've well, I've been you're able in the to like
0: place for it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Seattle's cold all year long, so it's just it yeah. is the perfect coffee city. Um, so, uh, but yeah, but, but well,
0: and you yeah. s- we see the same thing with alcohol, right? And this is another thing we have in common. So I stopped drinking almost a year ago. Oh, good for you! Thanks. Um, and I think, you know, for similar reasons as, um, you, I know you've gone through spurts of not drinking for mm-hmm. a few years mm-hmm. and, yeah I'm in it now uh, yeah. And it just, you know, just because you feel better, not, and, and like you, I think I'm better at abstaining than moderating.
2: Oh, so, for sure.
0: I mean, everybody's
2: different and right. God bless the people that, um, love to just have one drink and they're they're good and there's a lot of those people out there um I'm just not one of them like if I have one drink I'd like to have five and so
0: I I feel you uh, yeah yeah
2: and I and it's not to say that like when I have been drinking like my life's been a disaster because I've like you know I managed it um but it just it's and and I even have gone through periods of like you know not 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 you know drinking at all or drinking occasionally, but I think it's just the real estate in my head that I I came to resent. It was like that conversation around, well, am I going to drink tonight, or am I not, right. or am I going to have one, or, or am I going to have two, or am I like one, you know? And then once, yeah. when you are a parent too, you have that kind of like engagement with your kids, and and um, so with all kind of due respect to the community that you know does have healthy drinking habits i just um it's i've found with like this is my third significant time of not drinking i did not drink for two five year periods in other times mm. of my life and then actually kind of went back to it and um now i'm approaching the end of my second year um in uh, and uh yeah it, it's and it's just like it's like um it's it's hard to explain but it's like a simplifier like my life is very full and it's very um active and there's a lot going on. Um and so without alcohol, it just like takes that factor away that um that I might otherwise be like worried about or just you know kind of eating away at me. And um having said that, I will say like I still want to drink sometimes. There's like <laughs> yeah, I mean, happy sure. hours are like the worst because I'm like, oh, everybody's enjoying a really fun cocktail. <laughs>
0: Have you gotten into the
2: mocktails yet? (laughs) Yeah, I like mocktails and I like, if I go to a fancy restaurant, I like to challenge the bartender to make me something. I'm basically like, I like lemon, I like bubbly, I like, you know, ginger, you know, kind of, you know, basically ask them to make me something fancy. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. So, um, and for me, you know, part of the stopping was just my anxiety really just wasn't doing well the next Mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And I've, found that i enjoy waking up the next day much more Mm -hmm. you know um and yeah you're right it doesn't cloud up my head you know and i i don't have all the those mini arguments inside
2: yeah i mean take the top five like hungover moments you ever had and just like feel a sense of gratitude that you never have to wake up hungover again (laughs) yeah and like that that alone is like that alone might get me to the rest, like the rest of my life of sobriety. <laughs>
0: <laughs> do you, do you find that people react oddly when they find out that you don't drink? You know, it's an awkward topic
2: just because it's such a popular social lubricant in our culture. And I mean, more sure. than that, it's, uh, I would, I would venture to say it's a bit of a cultural disease, um, because we have this very stringent, like sort of approach around like drugs and the negativity of drugs, but we kind of like don't acknowledge the fact that we have a very like probably the most like dangerous you know social drug that's legally available um anywhere you turn but um i what i try to do which i've i've become somewhat comfortable with now is just to you know i certainly don't bring it up um frequently but but i try to bring it up naturally like oh i just don't drink or you know since i quit drinking or i don't even drink however or and the reason why I do that is not to like toot my horn because I don't really care. I, you know, I don't care whether people know if I drink or I don't drink, what they think about it or like any of that. It's more that I have this theory that there are actually a lot of people out in the world that are suffering um, mm-hmm. with alcohol and that they don't know what to do about it. And that the the, the even the idea of a life without alcohol um might seem much as it did to me before I quit, sort of like a graveyard of dead hopes, right? Like just this like, oh my God, like a life without alcohol that just seems so sad. It's so sad and so like, so boring and like, what are you going to do for fun? And, you know, and and I mean, those are very real questions that I completely like empathize with and I've felt them myself. Um, Mm -hmm. But I mentioned that I don't drink because I want to at least communicate on some level that you can have a really happy life without alcohol. And if you are suffering, there's help for you. And there's other people who you may not even are aware of who are clean and sober and that are, um, you know, if you ever want to have a feel good moment, you go to a AA meeting and um, talk to people that have either recovered or who are living great lives. It's not, not to mean that their lives are free of problems or, you right. know, any of that, but um, just like making it happen and doing you know things that fulfill them in more meaningful ways than you know getting sloshed um or you know kind of going from alcohol infused event from to alcohol infused event so so yeah i don't i don't feel awkward at all talking about it um so i i try to like mention it naturally as
0: um as much as possible that's what i've started trying to do as well and um you know i'm Fairly open about that, and you know, struggles with like um, depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I do that, the mental illness stuff. I do that because I do see such a huge stigma still on it. And i I've, I've just gotten to a point where I refuse to um, be a part of that. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, knowing where I'm at now, and um, and how. Uh, I feel in terms of my overall wellness right which Mm -hmm. is such a a a word these days Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. um you know I feel like listen if I can if I'm open about it in say a speaker bio Mm -hmm. um with my undergrad program it might open the door and it did actually for a student who is dealing with depression or anxiety mm-hmm. to reach out mm-hmm. and you know I would rather them get help now you know when they're 23 25 yeah. 28 than have it take until they're 35 right um, right you know there's so much there that could have been and i think the same is with same with the drinking and it's funny you don't realize how many people don't drink until you stop drinking right right you know um but then you also don't realize how many things Drinking involved until you stop drinking. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. It's and then so it's true. everywhere. Yeah. It okay. Everywhere. So before we wrap up, I mm-hmm. do want to give you a chance to talk about a couple of these programs that you guys have going on at Wazell. Mm-hmm. um You've got your Girls on Track mm-hmm. uh, program, which is you are donating sports bras to girls in middle school and high school. Is that correct? Uh, middle school. Middle school. Mm-hmm. Okay. Middle school girls and, in need. Okay. Um, which is amazing. And I so could have used that. Mm, um, and what was the impetus behind that?
2: Yeah, just quickly, girls on track um or the got got bras is was came out of, I mean, partly our evolution as a women's product company, but also uh, research that was released last year out of the u k where they did a significant bit of research on. Uh, middle school girls and, and how, um, and, and the reasoning behind whether or not they decide to stay involved in sports. And a big reason why girls step away from sports or being active in general is because they feel self-conscious or awkward about their changing bodies. And so middle school really has, um, you know, it and it just like, like was like a lightning flash of realization when we Started reading more into this, and 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 you know, thinking about our own experiences. And, and I mean, talk to any woman oh, on the sure. planet, <laughs> and you talk to them about um, going through puberty or middle school, and every one of them, their eyes light up, and they have a story, and they talk about their experience, either getting their first bra or not getting their first bra. And my story was that, as I mentioned, I grew up in a all male household, and I was so mortified to talk to my dad about needing a bra and I'm I'm actually pretty small chested so I didn't really need that much of a bra, Mm -hmm. but I, you know, wanted something. That I went to the department store in downtown Berkeley and I stole my first bra. So I actually (laughs) like decided that it would be easier to commit a crime than (laughs) um, than to talk to my dad. So so once we kind of like started thinking more on that, we were like, wow, what, you know, and what are we like uniquely positioned to do? And Wazelle is uniquely positioned to not only make products, for middle school girls, along the lines of a first bra, but also uniquely positioned to talk to girls about their changing bodies and about how all bodies are normal, all all breasts are normal. Um, you really just need to think about staying active, and and if you need it, to ha- think of a sports bra as being a tool in your toolbox. So. So that was where that was the origin of um, of that program was really looking at middle school as a fork in the road for girls and seeing if we could do as much as possible to nudge them um, on down the uh, down the active um, uh, fork.
0: No, that's fantastic. I mean, you know, you see girls who used to be active to stop and part of it's the well, it's not, you know, boys don't like girls who are you know, and then part of it is that awkwardness, you know, yeah. with the body and some of us, it takes until we turn 30 for us to get that awkward body stage in, but, <laughs> um, you know, regardless when it right. happens, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, it is, I mean, you, you, you almost don't even know how to utilize your body when it changes. And, yep. um, so, um, I think it's a great program that y'all are doing. Um, I got really excited when I saw you guys post it. Because it's such a smart, intuitive program and lines up so well with your brand. Um, it, it's great oh, to Oh, thank see. you. You know, the beauty of it is that our
2: volley, which is our ambassador team, or just I just call them our, our team, um, it is uh, that uh, $25 of that annual membership goes directly to the Woman Up Fund, which um, basically helps pay for that program and it's off to a fast start. All I want to say is that I, <laughs> I think it will be a significant part of our um, brand vision and brand evolution as we grow. And next year, we're looking to more than double the number of bras that we are giving away this year. And actually, like I mentioned, designing um, a specific bra for um, like the first bra uh, Aww. basically. So, um, it's, That's I, great. I love the fact that our broader community and those that have, um, decided to be a member of the Volet are contributing directly to that program because I'll just say kind of lastly, and I know have gone on a bit, but I, we at at Wazelle, we see that there are these like points in a woman's life where she really needs a team, um, and mm-hmm. she needs support, um, from her, uh her girl gang or her female community mm-hmm. and um i think the middle school is like that first the kind of major one where it's like we need to show up for young girls because they're not going to ask for it they're you know they're just too awkward like going through what they're going through um so we need to show up for them not just with product but with really like like straight talk and clear information and then the next is post college you know what are we doing to kind of gather around and gather up and create like women's community and women's teams and friend groups um, after you leave college and you're like, maybe have your first job or you're living in a new city or maybe you're in a new relationship. So that's kind of the second point we see. And then the third is kind of post like big, you know, career investment or family investment, or it could be kids um, where we see women in their, you know, early to, Late 30s, who are like they're like looking around and they're like, "Wow, I wanted to invest something in me now. I want to learn if I can run a half marathon, or I want to try a 5k, or I want to just join a running group." Um, and the, and that's a point when they need a team and a community as well. And then that can continue on, you know. That can you know for the rest of her life, she can she can stay connected to that group. So if anything, I would love for Wazelle, you know, regard you know regardless of the. Of the product side for the community to be this um, place um, where women can have those connections.
0: That's fabulous, and I I think I'm in your your latter stage there. Um, and awesome, you know, me too. You're not as in latter <laughs> stage as I am, though. I'm I'm guessing. So yeah, we uh, you know, it's it is interesting though when you move and trying to make friends. I mean, out, when you're done with school, it's it, it can be much harder. So um. You know, Wazelle and your your volley teams are are such good ways for women to connect with others um, and to meet people of all walks of life. Right. You know, and I think that's always important.
2: And that's Um, yeah. And I was just going to say that that's the one thing about the volley that we talk a lot about is not having it be a cult. I think well, that's one, like maybe impression, because people get so excited,
0: yeah, <laughs> when they're well, I in mean, it. But they do about everything, yeah. You know,
2: it's they get we get excited, right? Because we yeah. love the sport and we love each other and we love the community. But if there's one thing I've I've mentioned kind of consistently over time is this idea of being outclusive. So rather than being like an inward facing group, being mm-hmm. an outward facing group in the sense that. I don't really care if you're on the volley or not if you come, you know like we, we make all of our meetups kind of like open to as many people as possible. um the main the main purpose of the of the community is to spread run love, you know, whoever you are yeah. and wherever you might be. And um so I think that's that's also an important thing that um, try to try to reiterate.
0: Where can everyone follow along with you and Boiselle? Oh gosh. well, I My social media platform of choice is
2: Twitter, as you probably know. Um, And today is kind of exciting because I kind of instigated a a, a kind of a crazy uh, share of. Oh, yeah. On the topic of, yeah, of body, basically comments that anybody could be a stranger, could be a family member. I mean, most often, interestingly enough, it's a family member early on in your life that made a comment about your body that um, hurt you and that stuck with you and that basically shaped kind of your self image. And, and I think there's like so many women who have experienced that and I've just gotten a flood of, um, you know, basically sh- sh- people sharing and the hashtag we're using amusing as um, they said, hashtag they said, or hashtag um, she replied, but um, Twitter is mine, but also at, at Wazel basically on Instagram, on Twitter on um, and what's your twitter my twitter handle handle is at wazelle underscore sally
0: perfect and follow her everyone listening because i do and it Mm -hmm. cracks me up Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. my they said is and i didn't tweet it um earlier because i was uh playing around with some of the tech stuff with this but is um i got asked constantly when i was in high school if i was anorexic oh nice like on a constant basis yeah
2: Um, because you were
0: on the the leaner side or i was very thin and mm -hmm. very um straight Mm -hmm. so i had zero curve Mm -hmm. in my body Mm -hmm. um and it was kind of hilarious and then really disturbing at the same time Mm -hmm. because one i mean that kind of makes you feel bad Mm -hmm. and like you're doing something wrong i mean i was running what 50 miles a week maybe at that Mm -hmm, point mm -hmm. um yeah but then hilarious because you know we'd have a free run and my sister and i would run to burger king and eat a burger or five and then run back (laughs) so the you know the amount of food that we were eating was kind of ridiculous and i don't know it just was one of those odd things that people always said to both of us
2: yeah no i you know it's just so much right i mean people just need in general more like self-awareness and self-control about (laughs) about what the things that they say and i think that they're you know hopefully with more discussion around you know how harmful it can be lauren fleshman wrote an amazing letter to her younger self recently that was on mile splits it's just like people just need to they because they don't know that i i i think that in you know harm is not typically intended unless somebody's like calling you a name or something but it's just more more awareness about the effects that comments can have especially on on young
0: girls and young women and finally for everyone listening do you have any um uh asks for my listeners that i hope to have
2: (laughs) you know um i you know I, I, it's funny I've like dedicated my life to women
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um I think that i've I was just gonna say that I've dedicated myself to um to women to the women's community. I have two daughters um eight eighteen and fourteen and um I have a really strong female friend group and uh, and it's been interesting i guess I would ask that women um consider some of their unconscious bias that they might have actually towards other women. Oh yeah. And you know, I think you know there's been quite a bit of talk about this, you know, and there's theories around well, historically women have been competing against other women for male attention and therefore it's a competitive thing and they are trying to raise their own value within a patriarchal system and that's why women don't support other women. So I get I get that theory. Um, I want to call bullshit on it a little bit because uh, I've seen again and again, uh, women uh, go out of their way to support each other, to be positive, to lift each other up and have that be kind of a win-win for all. Um, So, you know, and I, and I want to say that I've had to face my own like thoughts around that area. Like, you know, I, I will catch myself being like overly critical of somebody's Uh, you know, that's out in the world trying to do something and I don't know, whatever, I don't like it or I don't think it's a bad idea or I disagree. And it's like, I do the same thing. Yeah. You know, just a little bit of ease with each other and a little bit of love and support and just less judgment. I think, um, goes, goes a really long way.
0: I think if we're able to show grace to others and ourselves, um, you know, we, we're, better people but we're also better at our jobs and our and everything you know um i used to be super super critical of pretty much any woman i met Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um and it's within you know the last like i said few years where i'm realizing how more and more i've been shaped by these really strong um amazing women in my life and how i want to help do the same for others and Mm -hmm. I think, um, and this is a story I'm sure I'll tell time and time again, but I think the Women's March changed me. Mm -hmm. Um, And also so did meeting this uh, little 10-year-old feminist who's amazing Um, in the fall. I'll tell you that story another time. But um, it, it just made it like I want to. The way that I can give back is by trying to push and get more women involved in sports, whether it be. Participating in sports, or whether it be in business, and um, you know that's part of the whole point of this podcast is having yeah. a resource for young women and and women in their careers to listen to the stories of other women and and to see each other as multidimensional humans as opposed to um, our competition in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Amen to that, Thanks for listening to my interview with Sally. Obviously, I had a great time. Um, You could hear me fangirling pretty much every, I don't know, five minutes. Um, And I'm really happy that we got to discuss a lot of the topics that we did. Um, So, next week, we have Denise White from EAG Sport Management. Uh, She was the first in the industry to really start this marketing side of the sports agency world. And uh, she has built her career on crisis management and and working with athletes who have gone through some troubled times. Uh, Please make sure that you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, RadioInfluence.com. Those are my guys or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss out. I appreciate you all sharing the episodes and podcasts generally with your friends. I know a lot of you have done that and I really do appreciate it. Um, Please continue to do that. Feel free to give me feedback on how I am doing with this because I'm obviously very new. So, you know, you can reach us at any of the podcast social media accounts and that's L-T-P-F pod P-O-D on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, The website where you can get additional information, including links to some of the situation, uh, articles on some of the situations, and uh, some of the the funny products we mentioned. Um, You can find those on the website in the show notes at ltpfpod.com and my personal twitter account is at bobby sue b-o-b-b-i-s-u-e and you can always shoot me an email at ltpfpod at gmail.com i look forward to hearing from you all and can't wait to share next week's episode with you bye
3: Radio Influence brings you the absolute best in digital audio broadcasting. We've got something for everyone. Sports personalities like the fabulous sports babe, Rich Herrera, and former Major League Baseball manager Kevin Kennedy as they take you inside the dugout. We'll take you inside the world of MMA with the MMA Report with Jason Floyd, the MMA Insiders, and the Valor Hour with Tim Loy and Casey Oxide. Or you could find yourself sitting ringside. With wrestling ring announcer David Penzer, TV law enforcement analyst and former police officer Vincent Hill breaks down this week's biggest crime stories and takes you beyond the badge. Chef Brian Duffy from TV's Bar Rescue shares his crazy life on the road with Duffified Live. And Scott Ledger will always make you think with some dangerous conversation. All of Radio Influence's shows can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.